Amen, amen. <clears throat> man, <laughs> I wish we could just sing all day, right? It's so good to, to be in the house of the Lord and be with people who are lifting our voices up to King Jesus. And we're so thankful for uh, leaders like Josh and, and Deborah who can lead us there to the throne room of God. And so we, we thank you guys for doing that, man. And, and, and I'm excited to be here with you guys. So if you don't know me, my name is Jericho. Uh, I've been here a couple times, a time or two. Uh, I am on staff over at Cornerstone Church across the way. Uh, I was on staff on the community side for a couple years, and just recently I transitioned over uh, to the salt company side. And so I always give you guys a life update on me. And so what's new with us now is that next year, next summer, my family and I are going to be uprooting from Ames, and we're going to be going down to Atlanta, Georgia, uh, to begin a church plant residency. And so we are so excited about that. We are really looking forward. I appreciate that. Uh, to be going down there, uh, we have a heart for uh, the local church. We also have a heart for the multi-ethnic church. We have a heart to reach the city, you know. And so there's a church down in Atlanta, Georgia, Blueprint Church. The Hottie Lewis is the lead pastor down there. You can look him up. Uh, phenomenal leader, phenomenal church. And we're looking to uh, do something like Blueprint uh, in another major city across the United States. And so you guys can be praying uh, with me about that. If you guys want to talk to me about that a little bit more after service, don't hesitate to come say what's up. I would love to share some of my heart and vision uh, and passion for that. Uh, so, man, this past week has been kind of a, a whirlwind. Uh, my family, uh, we have, my wife has a cousin who's been living in town, and she's been in town in Ames, Iowa for the last three, four years. And it's been so sweet to have her in the house. She's 25 years old. She's a young woman, and we have three daughters of our own. So she's been a phenomenal uh, role model for my kids in our house. And so she came to Iowa, and she obviously gets a boyfriend, right? And so this boyfriend, we have to check this guy out. We're like, we don't know about you. His name's Drew, right? <laughs> He comes over to the house, he's checking us out, we're checking him out. My kids are growing to be a likening of him, right? My youngest girl, Maya, she's really fond of boys. She's only two, but she, like, she likes that, you know? And so she's, she's like, Drew, hold my hand. Drew, give me a hug. Drew, why don't you put your arm around me? Right, I'm like, hold on, Maya. Hold on, Maya, right? I'm already losing one. I can't be losing two already this, this, this quick. But Sandra, man, she's, she's grown and she's been in the house. And if you guys would have told me that it would feel like from a person that I have been unattached to for most of my life, that three to four years would cause me to feel like I'm losing a daughter as she's getting married, which she did this past Friday, I would have told you guys y'all were crazy, you know. But that's exactly what it felt like. Uh, we were able to, I say we were able to marry her off, right? But that's, that's what it feels like. We were able to go to Minnesota. We partook in the wedding. My wife was in the bridal party. My girls were the flower girls. Uh, and man, it was such a joy to see that. Uh, but not only that, y'all, football season's kicking back up. <laughs> Can we clap for that? Yeah. Football season, I saw you guys as Pastor Matt running around with the Chiefs shirt on and the Chiefs flag. Your boy is from Kansas City, and so you know. I'm a Chiefs fan as well. Uh, last night, they preseason kicked off. The Chiefs were on, and the Chiefs won. And so they beat the San Francisco 49ers. I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, NBA Summer League It's the time of sports right now. Uh, if you guys are Hawkeye fans, any Hawkeye fans? Any Hawkeye fans? No? OK, well, for like the 0.1% of you in here who are Hawkeye fans with me, 
Y'all can, y'all can join with me in this, in this glory, man. The NBA draft just took place, and uh, Luca Garza, who's the national player of the year, uh, Joe Wieskamp, who's from Muscatine, Iowa, yo, both get drafted in the second round. Joe to the Spurs, uh, Garza to the Detroit Pistons, and both of these guys are balling in their own right. They are stars. Luca had a phenomenal game, 20 points, like 12 rebounds last night. It was amazing to watch. And so that's really all I have for you guys. Your pastor Matt like had, you know, Backstreet Boys come up and NSYNC come up for his intro. I only got sports for y'all, right? I'm not really a boys band, <laughs> late 90s, early 2000s fan. Uh, but I appreciate that. That was really fun to listen to as I was preparing for these messages. But if you guys got your Bibles, we're going to be back in Numbers again. Uh, Numbers chapter 20 is where we're going to pick up, and we're going to be going through the first portion of chapter 21. And as you guys are turning, I kind of want to just bring our attention to a couple things that keep popping up in the book of Numbers. They don't only pop up in the book of Numbers. They tend to pop up throughout the entire narrative of the Scripture. But we see them on full display here, right? We see a, a, a few things that keep popping up in this narrative. We see sin that keeps popping up. We see judgment that keeps popping up. And we also see mercy that keeps popping up. When you look at the people of Israel and their journey from Egypt into the wilderness and their desire to get to the promised land that was promised to them way back in Genesis 12 with Abraham, we see so many things taking place. And the first thing we see here is we recognize there's a lot of sin in the people of Israel. And it's sin in the form of human rebellion, right? The Israelites rebel against God, and they rebel against Moses as well, which by extension, when you rebel against the authority that God has placed in your life, you are rebelling not only against that authority, but you're also rebelling against God himself. And several times in the book of Numbers, this happens, and they begin to complain. The groanings of their hearts are made known. They complain about food. They complain about water. They complain about uh, being crushed by their enemies, And you keep reading and even goes on to say that the Israelites begin to complain so much that they begin to make death threats even against Moses. And so how God deals with sin and how he always deals with sin, the second theme is that there's judgment. And judgment in the book of Numbers comes by divine punishment. You see, when the people complain, God hears them. (laughs) When you complain, God hears you. God's ears are not closed to his people. But what happens in the book of Numbers when God's people start complaining? It doesn't go too well for them, does it? So the book of Numbers has stories of God killing rebellious Israelites with fire. It has stories of plagues. It has stories of snakes. And last week, you guys got a story in Numbers 16, and your pastor Matt was telling you about this guy named Korah who was part of the Levitical priesthood, and he had authority in and of himself. And he rose up against Moses, and he was saying, yo, we are out here in this wilderness. We don't have any food. We don't have any water. We don't have any place to lay our head. And we're out here just roaming. We're tired. We're hungry. We want to go back to Egypt. So he was able to raise over 250-plus leaders to go with him, and, and, and thousands of others were following his commands. And what does God do? He opens up the ground, and he swallows them whole. Sometimes Moses calls to God for help when the people turn on him, and sometimes God punishes them directly. But here's something about the judgment of God. We often tend to think about the judgment of God, and then we shudder. Right? We turn away. We turn our head. And why? 
We should do that. We should because he's holy. And his judgment can look like anything, but more often than not, and especially, it tends to look like scary things. But here's the thing. We can also find refuge in God's judgment. You see, God is a just God. And it would be unjust for a just God not to judge evil and wrongdoing. Here's the paradox about judgment. The paradox is that God, the paradox of the judgment of God is that it's something that we choose. Not something that he desires to give us. And we see this in the entire biblical narrative. If you look at Genesis, you begin in Genesis chapter 3. In the fall narrative, when Adam and Eve take from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, the command was to take from anywhere else in the garden, just don't touch this tree. And when that command was broken, and they took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they ate from that tree, that was sin, that was disobedience. And what does God have to do to sin and disobedience? He has to judge sin and disobedience. He didn't judge on grounds of them not doing anything. The judgment was brought upon themselves, and they were cast out of the garden. The same thing happens with their son, Cain. When Cain kills Abel, and God goes to Cain, and God goes, Cain, yo, where is your brother? And Cain lies, and he says, yo, am I my brother's keeper? He knows the answer to this question. He is, in fact, his brother's keeper. He's saying he doesn't know where his brother is, but in fact, he definitely knew where his brother was. And guess who else knew? God knew where his brother was. The judgment doesn't come on you because for no reason. The judgment comes on you because we tend to bring it on to ourselves. But God doesn't want judgment for his people. What does God want for his people? He wants repentance. He wants relationship. The things that go against God are designed to go against God, and the people that go against God choose to go against God, and everything that goes against God deserves judgment, and that includes us. But the thing is, here's the good news, y'all, that, that, that because judgment deserves to go, the good news of the gospel is that those who place their life in Jesus Christ, the judgment passes over. The sin of the world was put on the back, was put on the shoulders, was put on the head, was put into the hands of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on that cross. And when we place our faith in him, the judgment can pass. But along with God's judgment comes God's mercy. In the book of Numbers, this comes through divine provision. Even though the people of Israel are rebellious, God extends mercy to them. And rather than killing off the whole nation in the wilderness, he waits for the rebellious generation to die, and he preserves the younger generation. And along the way, he continues to do what he does. He provides, and he sustains, and he walks alongside. He provides manna, the miracle bread, to eat. He provides water out of miraculous circumstances. He provides safety and victory, and he provides shelter even to, a even to a people who don't deserve it. One thing to note is that between chapters 19 and 20, we're going to start hearing in chapter 20, there's about a 37-year gap between these two chapters. You guys on the narrative of, of numbers, the first portion of Numbers through chapter 19, you're only getting about the first two years of their walk in the wilderness. 
And then chapter 20 puts us right that dab in the middle of the, the, the 40th year. And so we're looking at this, this, this new generation of the Israelites, and we're looking at this gap. There's nothing in the scriptures that tell us what happens in this 37-year gap, but we do know one thing for sure, that there is a non-flattering trait that tends to jump from one generation to the next. And what is that trait? It's complaining. How would you feel to be marked as a people who just complain all the time? Maybe you remember as a kid or... Maybe you don't remember, but maybe my parents were a little more blunt than yours. But I remember growing up, and I would always have my parents telling me, you know, stop complaining all the daggone time. <laughs> you know? Stop complaining. You know, you're always complaining about something. Like, you're always tattletelling. Don't tattletell. You know, that was me. I was running around. I would complain. I would do these things. And I would say, hey, mom, can we get some McDonald's? And you're like, you got some McDonald's money? <laughs> right? Yo, can we go to the park? Ride your bike to the park, <laughs> you know? And I would get upset. I would get angry. I'd be like, yo, like, you're supposed to do something. Like, you, you can do this with me, right? I, I, I had a, a, a complainer's heart. You know, I would cry about things, and I would say things. You know, my parents would say, they, they would say, stop crying before I give you something to cry about. <laughs> right? I know some of y'all know what I'm talking about in here. I know some of y'all know what I'm talking about in here. And I remember one of the biggest complaints as a child was, why do we have to go to church so much? <laughs> Anybody else used to fit in that category? We grew up in the church, and we would be at the church all the time, and we would be at church on Sunday. We'd be at church Sunday afternoon. We would be at church Wednesday evening, right? And, and really, whenever there was something going on, we were there. We would be serving. We'd be evangelizing, walking down the streets, knocking on doors, doing all kinds of stuff. And I would always ask my parents on, the, on a long, from a long day at church, driving home in our Ford van. It was nice. It was brown. It had like these laid down seats in the back and black and white little TV in there at the CP radio. It was really sweet back in the day. And I would always say, do we have to go to church every Sunday? Just a couple weeks ago, I was taking my girls down to Kansas City to meet with my mom. Uh, they were going to have a whole week down there. My mom said, hey, bring the girls down. I love to hang out with them. I don't get to see them very much. And so we get in the car. I take my two oldest. We live in West Ames, and so we're going down towards Lincoln Way. And before we can even get to Lincoln Way, which is only a couple minutes away from my house, I hear this little voice coming from the back of the van. <laughs> it's coming up to my ears, and the first thing I hear is, how long is it going to be until we get to Granny's house? We got about three and a half hours, baby. Go ahead and strap up tight. Hang tight. We're going we gonna to be a minute. Watch your, watch your show. Okay, we get on the highway. We get to 30. We're getting towards 35. And I hear this first thing. We're probably 10 minutes away from the house now. Dad, I'm hungry. Do we have any snacks? Yes, we have snacks. Here's a beef stick and string cheese. <laughs> we get on 35. We're going down. We get to buy Des Moines, right? And it's, Dad, I'm thirsty. Dad, can we have more snacks? Dad, I have to go to the bathroom. Dad, can we pull over? Dad, can you change the movie, right? All these different things. We have a minivan, okay? All these different things. So I have to do everything in my power not to just blow a gasket and turn around and say, stop complaining. 
But the next three and a half hours was something like that. Hey, Dad, are we there yet? I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Are we there yet? And it's on repeat and repeat. And okay, I got to step back, right, because there's quite a bit of irony in here. <laughs> I'm giving a sermon, and we're talking about complaining. I'm giving an illustration, and we're talking about complaining, and yet I'm complaining about the story that I'm telling. Here's the reality. I'm a complainer. <laughs> You're a complainer. If you don't think, if you're sitting in one of these seats right now and you don't think you're a complainer, just ask the person sitting right next to you. <laughs> Actually, don't do it in here. I don't want any bloodshed, okay? Do it, do it, do it when you get home and, and, and have that conversation there. Hash that out, okay? But throughout the narrative of Numbers, we see that not only do the Israelites complain, but complaining begins to be like this, this, this identity of the Israelites, if you can find a key verse in Numbers that talks about the Israelites' personhood, you can find it in Numbers chapter 14, verse 11. And it says this, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, despite all the things that I have performed in their midst? This is God speaking. God isn't supposed to be speaking the how long questions. <laughs> God is God. God is almighty. He can do whatever he wants to do, and yet he chooses humility. He chooses compassion. He chooses to stay beside. He chooses grace. He chooses to be slow to anger, and he chooses to overflow with faithfulness and steadfast love. We see that God is shown as having this threshold, but the threshold is only reached when his people respond with the spirit of forgetfulness and selfishness. If you remember the Exodus story, they're on the brink of the Red Sea, and they've got the Egyptian soldiers coming down, and they're stuck between the Red Sea here. And you immediately see in Exodus 14 that they forget the entire exit from Egypt. They forget the ten plagues. They forget the frogs. They forget the turning the water into blood. They forget uh, the gnats, Right? They forget the death of the livestock. They forget the Passover, the death of the firstborn of Egypt. And here they are in Exodus 14, 11, on the brink of their own salvation. And here is what they say to Moses. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Just leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It's forgetfulness. They were, just, they were just saved from their own servitude. And here they are complaining, not thinking that God is going to deliver again, but we know as Christians that God will deliver. But this is what forgetfulness and selfishness gets us. They make us believe that the situation we were just in the addictions that we're trying to kick or the relationships we're trying not to go back to that literally had a shackled and bound in chains are more freeing than what God has in store for us. When we are faced with the temptation to return to or glorify our Egypts, it's like going through withdrawal. We can tend to grumble and scratch and claw and complain our way into oblivion. But do you know what complaining says about our God? Complaining says this, that 
It says to our creator of the universe. It says to the almighty sustainer and the almighty provider that he isn't doing a good job taking care of us. It says to our father who knows the number of hairs on our head and the one who leaves the 99 that he is actually a failing parent. For many of us, we complain and what we're saying is this, like, this isn't enough, God. There has to be more, God. I need more, God. God, is this it? And as we look at the text, this is the mark of the generation that was cursed to walk in the wilderness. Isn't it funny how we think of the generations of old and we think that the things that mark the older generation are just going to die out once the new generation comes up? It's not true. And we know it to not be true. There is nothing that leaves the old that doesn't come into the new that isn't intentionally dealt with. And so we have to think along those lines as we look here in the book of Numbers and we see that the old generation has things that are seeping into the new generation. Look at Numbers 20, verse 1 with me. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. So i got to make this point that this place called Kadesh, when you read this first verse, you can get the sense that they're just now coming to this place called Kadesh for the first time. But this isn't the first time they've been here. In fact, this isn't the first time that we've heard about Kadesh in the story, right? Kadesh, we get, we get notified that it's the place where Miriam dies and the place where she is buried. But we also get Kadesh in Genesis. And in Genesis, we know that Kadesh is the place that Hagar, the servant of Sarah, who bears Abraham's first child, Ishmael, this is the place where she gets banned from Sarah's tent, and it's also the place of Korah's rebellion from the story you guys heard last week of the ground splitting and Korah and all his people falling into this, this pit. This was the place where that happened. And in Numbers 13, 26, this will stick out to you. The men went back to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back a report for them and the whole community, and they showed them the fruit of the land. This is the place where they once were when they sent the spies out to go check out the land of Canaan. They sent out 12 spies. 12 came back. They brought back the fruits of the land. There were two narratives. One of them, the land is fruitful and beautiful. We can take it. We can go now. The other narrative, the people are too big. We're not going to be able to do it. And it's here in Kadesh at the place where their unbelief and taking the promised land and where they were condemned to 40 years of walking in the wilderness. Verse 2, And now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together amongst Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. See, this is what a spirit of forgetfulness does to us. This is what a spirit of selfishness does to us. It causes us to think that death is actually better than waiting on God. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Okay, pause. So they're talking about this lavish land that is flowing with fruit, that is flowing with drink, that is flowing with vines. 
and resources. The thing is, it sounds like the Israelites are getting confused that the wilderness should be the promised land. They heard a promise. You're going to inherit the promised land. And yet they're wandering and they're still thinking, yo, we should be getting the benefits of the promised land. God said the things they're describing, the grain, the figs, the vines, the pomegranates, the water, these are the things that they would be expecting to find in the promised land. But they know they're not in the promised land, right? They have to know. But this isn't how we can get to. You know, one of my favorite holidays is Thanksgiving, also one's Christmas. And I love the family. I love the camaraderie. I love the community. I love getting together. But obviously, my favorite part of these holidays is the food, <laughs> right? If you're looking at me, I, lo I love to eat me some food, <laughs> right? I eat my veggies and everything else. <laughs> but one thing I learned in crossing cultures, and, and in particularly in marrying my wife, is that we do holidays a little bit differently, <laughs> right? Thanksgiving, for example, the food is different. The vibe is just different. The conversation is different, right? My wife does pumpkin pie. We do sweet potato pie, right? My wife has, like, turkey only, and we have maybe turkey, but for sure we're going to have some prime rib, right? We're going to have German chocolate cake. <laughs> we're going to have all the spread, right? And then the... The, the conversation, the vibe, yo, we're going to turn on the karaoke machine. We're going to get the microphones out. We're going to get our dancing shoes on, and we're going to sing and have a phenomenal time. And my wife and their family, they're going to sit around in a circle and have in-depth, intentional conversation and get to know, yo, what's been going on in your life since the last time I saw you, <laughs> right? There's a difference. Well, one of the main differences that sticks out to me is the timing in which we eat the food, right? <laughs> My wife's family, we go over to my in-law's house, and we eat Thanksgiving dinner. Matter of fact, you can't even call it Thanksgiving dinner because it happens so early. It's like Thanksgiving lunch, right? Borderline Thanksgiving breakfast. <laughs> like 11, 12, like, like you're pushing it, okay? But at my house, we go home, and, and we're having dinner, and we eat so late that it might as well be the Black Friday <laughs> dinner, <laughs> right? We're coming over to the house, the, the, the people who are making the food are promising, yo, in the evening, five, six o'clock, yeah, we're going to have the food ready, so come on over. But we know better than that, right? So 6.30, 7 o'clock, we give them a grace period. We show up, and obviously the food's clearly not done. <laughs> and so we get in the house, and we grow impatient, and we're waiting. And so we go into the kitchen, and we grab the bag of chips, and we come back in the living room, and we're sharing this bag of chips, nom, 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 nom. And then we get hungry again, so someone goes in and grabs maybe the cookies that may be set out on the table later. We're like, we're eating the cookies early. Hey, I'm thirsty. Go grab me a soda from the fridge. I get the soda. We come back out, and we're, and we're just sitting in the living room, but we're upset that Thanksgiving dinner isn't ready yet, but we're expecting it to be ready yet, and we're eating food, grumbling and complaining about, yo, I'm hungry now. <laughs> this should be Thanksgiving dinner now. But here's the question. How often do we disappoint ourselves and give in to the spirit of discontentment when the holding place isn't quite like the promised place? For most of you, it might not be a Thanksgiving meal disappointment, but maybe it has the beginning, but maybe it was the beginning stages of when you stepped out to start your own business. Maybe it was a letdown of high expectations when you started that new job, or maybe the grass wasn't actually greener when you broke up with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. 
It's often said that humans are creatures of habit, and that's true, but we're also creatures of action. And because we want to act, we often come to rash conclusions and we jump to rash decisions. And But instead of being quick to act or being quick to complain, we should do what? We should be quick to pray. Look at verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. This is the posture. It's to fall on your face. This is the posture of a leader, Moses and Aaron, but this should also be the posture of a grumbling congregation. If you're welling up with discontent, if you're welling up with complaint, fall on your face. When you're not connecting with your, with your spouse, fall on your face. When you can't seem to get through to your kids, fall on your face. When you walk into your office, let's keep it real, and you can't stand the sound of your boss, let alone the sight of your boss, you'll fall on your face. Before we act, we have to seek the Lord. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. So we break this down and it says this, that God tells Moses and Aaron to do three things. Number one, it says to take the staff and assemble the congregation. Number two, tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Number three, give the water to the congregation and their cattle. Let's look at what happens in verse 9. Moses and Aaron do this in verse 9. So Moses took the staff from before the Lord and he, as he commanded him. Okay? Check. Great job, Moses. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. Great. Check, Moses. But then it says, and he said to them, here now, you rebels... Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? This is Moses' grumbling moment. Okay, that was a little strong, Moses, but okay, I'll let that slide. But verse 11, and Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice. Continuing verse 11, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock, right? Let me ask you a question. What did God ask Moses to do? Speak to the rock. <laughs> what did Moses do? He struck the rock. But what happened anyway? Water flowed from the rock. Even in our disobedience, even in our sin, even in our, in our outlandish behavior, God still is faithful and God still provides. But there's still consequence. God must judge sin. And so in verse 12, it says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. And this may be the saddest verse in Numbers. Moses, this man of God who was, who was given this gift, who was chosen, who was saying, yo, you're going to be my people. You will lead my people. You will take them into the promised land. And then here, in one moment, in one act of rebellion, that promise gets taken away. And here, these are the waters of Meribah called quarreling, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. But then we see throughout the rest of the narrative of Numbers 20, but even despite this, and other troubles that lay ahead for the Israelites as they press on towards Canaan, 
such as getting denied access through a more direct route in verses 14 through 21, and the death of Aaron in verses 23 through, through 29, right? What once was a powerful trio in Moses, Miriam, and Mo uh, Moses, Miriam, and Aaron is now just Moses. And number three, they were prematurely confronted by Agab, a Canaanite king, in chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, and God still proved faithful. They were still met by the grace and mercy of God. Okay, and now, you may be thinking I may be coming up a little harsh on the Israelites. I may be coming a little bit hard on ourselves, too, as, as, as we see ourselves in the Israelites and we are complainers. But I want to make this statement. Maybe the Israelites had a point. Maybe their complaining wasn't all for naught. Maybe it wasn't all unwarranted, right? Maybe complaining in and of itself isn't necessarily all bad. We see that David in the Psalms, when he lifts up his complaints, and <laughs> which he does in the Psalm, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, provide for me, care for me. Lord, take care of my enemies. I am anguished, I am burdened, I'm saddened, right? I'm being hunted. Lord, let me take refuge in you. David is also complaining. And all the prophets who hear God and speak to God but aren't trying to tell him what to do, they are also lifting their complaints to the Lord. And in Acts 6, there's an episode in the, in the, in the early church where the Hellenistic Jewish women are complaining about not being given the proper portions that the Hebraic Jewish women are given, the widows. And they raise up a complaint. And what happens? They don't tell them, yo, don't complain. Just go sit down. You'll get your rations whenever you get them. No, they construct the diaconate. <laughs> and they care for them. And they give to them. Complaining isn't all bad. But there's a distinction, right? There's a difference between complaining against God and bringing your complaints to God. If you've ever experienced a wilderness moment, then you know what I'm talking about. And if you've never experienced a wilderness moment, just keep living and you will. You see, wilderness moments are like pressure cookers. They reveal something in you and they get results fast. As if the result in you is coming against God, then what happens is that we get bitter. But if the result is you leaning into God, then the result is that you get better. When we come against God, we can be conformed to the flesh. But when we lean into God, we are transformed by the Spirit. When you're a person of God, it ought to transform how you endure and how you endure suffering. You see, tough times are inevitable. And the Scriptures tell us that they come on the just and the unjust. They're going to come no matter what. And when you feel them, and when you feel them come, when you're in the midst of the wilderness, when you feel like they're, you're surrounded on all sides, you have a choice. Are you going to conform to the world? Or are you going to be transformed by the Spirit? See, the transformation in your suffering doesn't happen through complaining and taking matters into your own hands. It doesn't come by complaining against God. And if that's not how it comes, then how does it come? The transformation comes with repentance and gratitude. See, when was the last time that you just said, thank you, Jesus? Like, have you ever tried to be mad and complain and grumble and then be thankful at the same time? You can't do it. You can't be angry and hold a frown and then be thankful 
at the same time. Gratitude is a miracle in that way. In Colossians 3, when Paul is talking about what it looks like to live a Christian life, and he's talking about getting along with one another, he's saying, listen, put on the fruits of the Spirit. Be kind. Be compassionate. Be humble. Be gentle. Be forgiving and put on love. And then he gets to verse 15, and he says this, and let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts. And then he just slips this right there at the end of this verse, and be thankful. And be thankful. In our relationships, it's gratitude that helps you get along with one another. In our situations, it's gratitude that brings peace. It helps you be less anxious and less worried and less troubled. When we remember that Jesus says that we are more precious than the birds and the lilies and that he feeds and clothes both, then we can face our trying moments with hope and repentance and gratitude. This is what the Israelites needed and the lesson I believe they learned So as I close, I want us to take a look at the last bit of this passage in chapter 21, if you're following with me, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. (laughs) Imagine that. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Come on, y'all, old habits die hard. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Y'all, stop right there. This is the very first time that the Israelites actually take ownership of their part in this whole deal. Look at this again, verse 7. We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. This is what it takes. This is how we get a contrite heart. This is how we can get on the avenue to gratitude. We have to take ownership in our part, and they ask Moses, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses, like he always does, he gets on his face and he prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Y'all, this is a powerful, powerful text. (laughs) When we look at the end of this text... God desires nothing but for his people to be saved, for his people to be whole, and for his people to be healthy. And as we look and they're grumbling and they're complaining, it takes this one moment when they take ownership of their own sin on themselves and they come to a state of repentance and they say, Lord, we have done wrong. We have come against you. We have sinned against you. This is the love language of Christ. And this is the language that gets us to our healing. And so what they do here is is, is Moses fashions this serpent. And I love this analogy, right? Because if you remember in Genesis 3, it was what that was cursed to wander on its belly for the rest of its days. It was the serpent. This analogy is greater than looking at this thing and saying, yo, now you have salvation. No, it's greater than that. It's the redemption of all things. 
the thing that was cursed is now used as the thing to redeem. This is the work that God does on the cross, and it's also the work that God does in your lives. Listen, y'all, this serpent was a representation of Jesus. But you and I have been bit by something a little bit more than a measly snake. There's something else that's running through us that's even more deadly than a little bit of venom. As deadly as it can be, venom can maybe take you out of this life. But a life full of unrepentant sin, a life not devoted to Jesus, a life not claiming Jesus as Lord and Savior will take you out of eternity. So if you're hearing this message and you have not laid your life down for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I want to extend that to you. Ponder on that. Think about that. Don't go another day. Commit to the Lord. Respond to the Lord. You're here. The Spirit is knocking. Open up your heart. Open up your soul and let him in. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for you. Lord, we are thankful for who you are. We're thankful for your example. We're thankful for your sacrifice, your goodness, Lord. And I reflect on the worship this morning, and, and we sing this song that has the lyrics that says that your, your goodness is running after me. Your goodness is running after. It's running after. It's running after me. Lord, I pray that we can sing that with a whole heart, that we know that you are a good, good God, that you are a God that loves your children, that you are a God that wants to be with your children, that even when your children are rebellious and sinful and we fall away, that you are still a God that pursues, that you are still a God that loves, that when we reject you, you are a God that comes near to us. And instead of rejecting us, instead of pushing us to a side, you raise yourself up on the cross for us to see you. You raise yourself up on a cross for us to cast our eyes on as the Israelites cast their eyes on the bronze serpent. And you say, Lord, whoever looks at you, whoever repents of their wrongdoing, whoever confesses you, Lord, it is an act of faith. And we're grateful for that, Lord. I pray that anyone under the sound of my voice that hasn't made that confession, that hasn't repented of their wrongdoing, that they do so today. Lord, show yourself to be kind. Show yourself to be good. Let us remember the narrative of the Israelites through the book of Numbers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells about this narrative. And he's telling this new church on the other side of the cross, that their forefathers, these people right here, the Israelites wandering through the wilderness, these things were written down so that we won't forget. These things are written down for us so that we can know what it looks like to move and be a part of and pray and live with one another as a people who are devoted to God and not devoted to ourselves. Lord, work in us a contrite heart. Work in us a mind that reaches out to the other. Work in us a desire to stand with one another as we live as people for you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name.